Moshe Rabbeinu sends out the Meraglim, the 12 spies, to go into the land of Israel, see the lay of the land, bring back a report, and plan the plan of attack. When the Meraglim come back, they come back with a report that Moshe Rabbeinu certainly was not expecting and certainly <clears throat> didn't want to hear. The report was, yes, the land is good. However, it's occupied by giants living in fortified cities. And the Meraglim said, if we attempt to go in there, we will be annihilated, we will fail. Kalev, who was one of the Meraglim, but not within that plot, said, it's not true. Hashem could save us. We have to rely on Hashem. We have to trust in Hashem. But the Meraglim said, what you're saying isn't true. Ki kumimenu. You don't understand who these giants are. They're so powerful. They're so mighty. They're more powerful than who? Than Hashem himself. Rashi explains that when the Meraglim said the words, ki kumimenu, that these giants are more powerful than him, him refers to Hashem. And apparently on some level, the Klai Yisrael as a nation accepted their words. They began crying. And there began one of the worst moments in our history. That day was Tishabov, and Hashem said the crying then was without cause, but the crying will be for generations with a cause. At that moment, it was decreed that the Jewish nation in that time period would all die in the Midbar, except for those who were younger than 20. It was also decreed that the generation that would actually go into Israel would go in a different way, and that would not be the type of acquisition that would be permanent. Therefore, there would be an exile. So we now, some... 2,000 years after that moment of exile, are still living outside our borders because of that event. And while there's a tremendous amount to learn from the events of Miraglim, there's one point that I want to stop on, and that's the explanation that Rashi puts in. And when the Miraglim said that we are going to be destroyed, Kalev said, no, Hashem can save us. No, says Miraglim, these giants are so powerful they're more powerful Mimenu from him, says Rashi, who's Mimenu from Hashem. The Miraglim was saying, as great as Hashem is, you don't know how big these giants were, you don't know how mighty they are, they're more powerful than Hashem. And this Rashi is very difficult to understand for an obvious reason. Meaning to say, if you're telling me that I don't believe in Hashem, okay. If you're telling me I don't think Hashem's going to save us, fine. Even if the Miraglim would say something like, Hashem doesn't exist, logically I understand it. But that's not what they said. They said that these giants are so powerful, they're more powerful than Hashem. I mean, l- listen, let's, uh, what does planet Earth weigh? Right? If you try to weigh the planet, you'll note that it's pretty heavy. It's got lots of, lots of stuff in it. If Hashem is strong enough to hold up a planet, I dare say he could take care of a few medium giants. What do they mean that they're more powerful than Hashem? And if you don't really hear this question, let's focus on it for just a moment. Who were these 12 people? Number one, They lived through all of the miracles that were the greatest manifestation of Hashem's hand ever in creation. They lived through 10 months of Dam, Tzvadeya, Kinim, seeing a change of all the laws of nature. They lived through Kriya Shamsuf. They walked through the sea. They lived in the Midbar now, living on Mon that was delivered to their doorstep. They drank water from a rock that would daily follow them in their travels. But more than just living through these miracles, these people as individuals were great individuals. They were hand-selected by Moshe. Granted, they weren't the greatest of the generation, but for this purpose, they had to be very great, very wise people. The Sfron explains that Moshe chose those who would best assess the land. You can't send a novice 
You have to send someone with wisdom and understanding because you need an accurate assessment. But the Ramban says even more significantly, if you look at the order in which they're listed, they're ordered in rank order. Meaning to say from the greatest to the least, amongst the 12 Miraglim were two individuals, Yeshua bin Nun and Kalev bin Yafuna, great Sadiqim. But the Ramban points out that they were number five and number seven respectively. As great as Yeshua was, as great as Kalev was, they were not number one and number two. So here's the point. If you're dealing with Sadiqim, as Rashi says in the beginning, and you're dealing with people <clears throat> who lived through Kriyas Yamsuf, how could they say the words that these giants are so strong, that more powerful than Hashem? It sounds very difficult to understand. And to answer this question, what I'd like to do is take a sort of step back and focus on something that very often happens when people experience challenges in their life. Let me give you an example. A man opens an electronic retail store, and he's making money hands over fist. Everyone flocks to the store. He's becoming wealthier and wealthier by the day, but he's a mammon. He says, Baruch Hashem, it's all me'es Hashem, all from Hashem. And people come to him and say, listen, it's obviously your business acumen. No, 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 it's Hashem. It's obviously your MBA. No, 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 it's Hashem. Everything is from Hashem. And you're very impressed. The man is clearly a mammon. He believes in Hashem. It's wonderful. Until Circuit City opens across the street, and then, oh! Now, what happened to your Emit Hashem? What happened to its Olmeis Hashem? And we see this type of situation often. A woman will be very, very from, and she'll often say, everything is from Hashem. It's all up to Hashem. Until her kid becomes sick, and then all of a sudden, dread, fear, trepidation. She's shaken to the core. And we see this very often amongst religious people, who clearly understand that Hashem runs the world, they say it all the time, yet the minute there's a little bit of a bump in the road, all of a sudden, oh, fear, trepidation, what happened to their bitachon? And to answer this question, I think we need to better understand bitachon. But we better, to better understand it, we need to focus on the four mistakes that people typically make about bitachon in general. In Shemuz number 18, we focused on the difference between emunah and bitachon. Emunah, succinctly put by the Rambam, codified in the Siddur, are the words, Animamim b'emunah shalema, I understand with a complete understanding, Shabori Yisbarach, that the Creator, who bore umanhig, he's the one who created and runs, Vulavado asa ose v'yasel cholamasim, he alone did, does, and will do all activities on the planet. Emuna is an understanding that Hashem is actively involved in running everything that happens in the world. From the largest to the smallest, Hashem is there controlling, orchestrating, maintaining this world as it's supposed to be run. Bitochan is something different. And the Chavos of Ovis defines Bitochan as menuchas nefesh haboteach, a relaxing of the heart of the boteach. I rely on Hashem. I trust in Hashem. There's a calmness within me. There's an equanimity because I know that Hashem is taking care of me. Imuna is the knowledge that Hashem runs the world. Bitochen is then trusting Hashem. And I say that there are four mistakes that we typically make about both Bitochen and Imuna, but it's more clearly focused on when we focus on Imuna. And let me explain to you what I mean. I was once giving a shear somewhere, and the topic was exactly this idea, emuna, bitachin, etc. And when I was finished, a gentleman came over very agitated. He said, I, I have to speak to you, Rabbi, I must speak to you. 
He said, what you spoke about was wonderful, bitochen, and I see that you have bitochen, but I don't have any bitochen. What could I do? I asked him, what do you mean? He said, look, I'm a lawyer. I do very well. I make a lot of money. But every day when I go into the office, I'm, I'm scared. I'm worried about my mortgage. I'm worried about my kids' tuition. I, I have no bitochen. I have no bitochen. What, what could I do about it? Something about the story didn't make a lot of sense. So I probed a little bit and I discovered what was really going on. What was really going on was this man had been abandoned when he was four years old. His father left, just walked out of his life. And as a result, he had a very difficult upbringing. And partly by temperament, partly because of that, he had some very real anxiety. And his anxiety was surfacing in many things in life, particularly in terms of money. And I said to him as follows, I said, I think you're making a mistake. I said, I want you to imagine the following. Imagine that you and I come home every night. And every night I come home cool, calm, and collected. And every night as you go home, you walk those few blocks to your house, and you're shaking, trepidation and fear. It seems to everyone there, I'm a big Baal Bitochen, and you have no Bitochen. I trust in Hashem, and obviously you don't. That's clear what's, what's going on there, right? Until we look at the situation, and then we see that I live in Muncie, a suburban area. I pass smiling kids on the way to my house, and my walk home is very pleasant. You live in the inner city. You pass drug lords and gangsters, and your walk is a very, very different walk than mine. You see, I explained to him the settings of your life are going to determine whether your bitachon is tested. If everything is well and fine, you're living in a peaceful era, and everything is happening in an orderly manner, it's not a test to be tochen and doesn't indicate whether you have any trust in Hashem. It's when things are a little bit rough and when things are questionable, when things are black, that's when it's an indicator of your level of bitochen. I said, your issue has nothing to do with bitochen. You have anxiety. You have to deal with the anxiety. You have to work on that problem from its core, deal with it, and then you could work on bitochen. But the kind of bitochen that you would need... Not to have anxiety, you'd have to be on the level of, I don't know, maybe Dover Amelach, Avram Avinu. You'd have to have total, complete bitochen that probably no one in our generation possibly is going to acquire. Your job is to work on the anxiety and then afterwards work on bitochen. But you see, this recognition that bitochen is tested, number one, by the settings of my life. If a young fellow is asked to go into Gaza to root out terrorists, and that is a major test of his bitachon, very different than a young fellow walking into the mere base medrash to learn morning seder. Meaning to say the situations of my life are what test bitachon, but besides the situations of my life, my temperament, my nature. Some people by nature are very calm, cool, and collected, very easygoing, nothing rattles them. Some people by nature are nervous and anxious. But that's not an indicator of bitachon, it's an indicator of a personality type. And bitochen is an overlay based on your situation, based on your personality type. How much you trust Hashem will determine how calm you are. But if we look at two individuals, just because one's nervous and the other one doesn't, doesn't tell us one is a much bigger or much less about bitochen, because again, it's a setting, personality type, and then bitochen is what factors in after. And this, I believe, is the first mistake we make about bitochen. We think that bitochen is something that you come to an understanding and then you trust in Hashem. Look, I studied the halachas. I went through the Chavaz of Avos, Shara Bitochen, and I learned all about the way Hashem runs the world. I got it straight. Now I'm a Baal Bitochen. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
You cannot learn bitachon in the base medrash. You could hit the books, you could go to every shear, you could think about it, but you don't learn bitachon until you're in the thick and thin of life. It's when you're in the situations of life, when you have to actually apply it, when you have to dig deep within you and realize that, oh my goodness, I am in trouble and only Hashem can help me. When you go through that process, that's how you incorporate bitachon. Because bitachon is not an intellectual pursuit, it's an emotional reality. <clears throat> Recognizing that Hashem is there, feeling Hashem's presence, being aware that Hashem is going to save me and protect me is not something that you gain by knowledge. It's something that you gain by experience. And that's the first mistake I think we make about bitachon, about emunah. <clears throat> They're not intellectual pursuits. Oh yes, you have to study. You have to know the background. You have to know what Hashem expects and how Hashem runs the world. But after that, that's when you actually put it into practice by going about this thing called life, when life deals you curveballs in different situations, and you practice recognizing that it's Hashem bringing you there, and practice working on your bitachon, that's how you actually grow in it. And that, I believe, is the first mistake we make about bitachon. But I believe there's a second one. And that second one isn't as obvious. And I'll explain to you what it is. We human beings inherently are biased. That's just the nature of human beings. Um, if you're not sure that I'm right, let me share with you an interesting example. Different people have different skills in terms of people abilities. Meaning some people get along with people very well, some people don't get along so well. If we were to rate people, let's say we had the top 1%, these are people who get along with everyone, they're really very skilled, very talented, very easygoing, they get along with everyone. Then we wrote, we took the next group, let's say the top 25%, and then we took the bottom 25%. If I were to ask you the following question, where do you rate? How do you rate in terms of getting along with people? Now, if I were to ask you, do you fit amongst the bottom 25%, I doubt you'd say yes. If I were to ask you, do you fit in the top 1%, I also doubt you'd say yes. But if I would ask you candidly, honestly, where do you fit, I'll bet you you would say in the top 25%. Now, why am I confident that you would say in the top 25%? Because studies show that 80% of people polled feel that they are in the top 25% of being able to get along with people, of develop people skills. Now, if you do the math, you realize it's a little silly because 80% of people believe that they're in the top 25%. Statistically, it can't be. Most people can't be better than most people at getting along with people. But there's a certain bias. We all naturally feel that we get along with people much better than we actually do. Another example of a bias most of us feel we drive much better than we do. It was an Arab Shabbos, and I was driving, and I tried to be very careful, and an wo- older woman gave me one of those looks that could kill. Now, I know fully well that a block before, she was probably doing her hair or her makeup and not paying attention, and it happens to be that maybe I was a little bit over the line here, I don't really know, but that look that she gave me was a clear obvious demonstration of what's wrong with you. Don't you know how to drive? How could you act so reckless? I would never do anything like that. And I'm sure that the woman does it all the time, far worse than I ever did. And we all have a natural bias, and we feel that we drive better than we do. And these biases tend to be innocuous. They're not a big deal. We feel we're more talented than we are. We feel we're better equipped for many situations than we really are. In general, most people have some biases, and we feel we're maybe more honest, more modest, etc. Now, that's not a big deal. But when bias affects your optimism, 
then it becomes very interesting. Studies show that most people have what's called optimism bias. Optimism bias is a certain sense of, I'm pretty confident that good things will happen to me. And I'm also very confident that bad things just aren't going to happen to me. I'm not going to die of cancer. I'm not going to get into a car accident and be crushed. I'm not going to you know, have these bad things happen to me. I'm sure I'll do well financially. I'm sure I'll get a good job and I won't be fired. We all seem to have a natural optimism bias. And again, the number is about 80%. About 80% of people have a natural sense of optimism that doesn't really fit the reality. And if you'd like to see an example of this, ask an 18-year-old girl, what do you think your marriage is going to be like? Oh, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to love him. He's going to love me. It's going to be great. What do you think your children are going to Oh, my kids are going to be great. Happy kids. Good kids. It's going to be wonderful. Even though her parents might be fighting cats and dogs, even though her siblings might be each one a bigger misery than the other, she has a certain rosy picture of the future. Things are going to be wonderful. This is an example of an optimism bias, but 80% of people have it across the gamut of the human activities. Bad things generally will not happen to me. Good things generally will. And you'll see this as a global phenomenon. Studies show that every culture, men and women, older and younger, everyone seems to have this bias. I used to drive in Wednesday night for the schmooze in Brooklyn. And Ben Chaifetz used to go in with me every week. And we would listen to the radio before we left Muncie because the traffic report can make a huge difference in what time we actually arrive, which bridge to take, which tunnel, etc. So we'd listen every time before we left. And invariably, there were car accidents reported. One, two, three. In one week, there were five accidents reported on the way in. So I turned to Ben. I said, he was driving. I said, uh, are you nervous? Nah. Why? It's not going to happen to us. And there's a certain pervasive sort of feeling that these bad types of things won't occur to me. Ask a teenager who smokes. When on the pack of cigarettes, it says clearly, smoking will kill you. It's not going to happen to me. And there's a sort of optimism bias, which is very healthy, very important. But when you start thinking about it, it has no connection to reality. As a matter of fact, interestingly, Tali Sharot, who is a neuroscientist, did a study. She brought people into her lab and she asked them a series of questions. One question was, what are the odds of your dying of cancer? And if people responded 10%, and she pointed out, well, based on your age, based on your family history, the odds are actually 30%. She then asked them later the same question. Now that you know the fact <clears throat> are what they are, what, would you, what do you feel the odds of your dying of cancer are? And the people typically would say about 11%. Yet they could repeat to you exactly the number that they were told. But it didn't matter because somehow I'm different, I'm not in that group. Now, optimism bias is a critical, vital part of life. The only people who don't have this bias to optimism are people who are depressed. I once had a young woman come to talk to me. She was an older single, and she was really, really depressed. And she had this clear understanding she'll never get married. And I spent I don't know how much time convincing her finally. <clears throat> most people do get married. Most likely they'll get married. Finally, after maybe two hours, <clears throat> I won that battle. And she said, well, maybe, yeah, but probably I won't have kids then. 
Listen, most people have kids. Yeah, but then if I have kids, uh, they'll probably get sick. No, listen, most kids have kids who are well. Yeah, but even if I have kids who are well, my husband will probably die when he's young. I walked out. I said to my wife, I'm depressed. She sucked the life out of me. You see, if you don't have optimism, life is very bleak, very, very ugly. There are 40,000 people a year who die on the U.S. highway system. If every time I got behind the wheel of my car, I thought I might be in that statistic, I would stop driving. And optimism is a vital part of a successful human being, and it's something we have to work on, something we have to encourage in our children. But optimism has nothing to do with bitachon. You see, bitachon isn't this naive sort of sense of everything's going to be well and fine. Bitochen is a recognition that Hashem is actively involved in my life. Bitochen is seeing Hashem leading me, seeing Hashem guiding me step by step. Bitochen is knowing that Hashem is right there with me as I go through my life. But it's not this sort of optimistic, naive sort of sense of everything's going to be well and fine. It's a realism based on the recognition that Hashem is there. Would you like to understand better that fellow who owned the electronics store? It's really quite simple. It's great. I'm going to make a fortune of money, and I'm doing it. There's a sense of optimism, of, wow, this is going to continue. But God is nowhere in that picture. It's a sort of bubble that he's created with a sense of optimism, and it's wonderful, and it's good. But then when the bubble bursts, he realizes there was nothing there. Bitochen is totally different than an optimistic, cheery mindset. Optimism is very important to work on. It's a very vital feature in a human being's life, but it has nothing to do with bitachon. Bitachon is based on a reality, recognizing Hashem there, and recognizing Hashem leading me in life. And I believe that's the second mistake we make about emuna, about bitachon. We mistake optimism for bitachon, and it has nothing to do with it. And we have the sense of, Mirza Hashem, everything will be good. But that Mirza Hashem really doesn't belong in a sentence. We have a feeling of everything is going to be good because I'm optimistic. Bad things aren't going to happen to me. Good things will happen to me. But it has nothing to do with seeing Hashem in the picture. To actually grow in Amuna, to actually grow in Bitochen, you have to learn to recognize Hashem there actively. And as a matter of fact, if you'd like to work on it, I'll give you a simple exercise. Tomorrow morning, take an index card with you. And when you wake up in the morning, start this exercise. Find 10 times during the day when Hashem is intervening in your life. Find the 10 times when Hashem orchestrates things. You know, somehow someone comes over to you right after davening and speaks to you longer than he would. Or somehow there's a school bus that just goes right into lane and slows you down. Find those little things that occur, and I guarantee if you train yourself to look, you'll find 10 of them a day. Now, I don't know the why behind it happening, and I'm not interested in why Hashem is doing it, but I just say find the what. And I guarantee if you look, you'll find at least 10. And how am I so confident? Because those are words we say in modim three times a day. Modim anach nalach, Hashem, we acknowledge, we appreciate that which you do for us. Al nisecha al niflosecha. Nisim and niflaos. Niflaos are wonders. The human body is a wonder. Nature is a wonder. Gravity is a wonder. I study this world and I see replete with so many features that Hashem created. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Those are the niflaos that Hashem created. But nisim are miracles. 
<clears throat> miracles that Hashem does for me, Bechol Ace, at all time, Erev Avok Givetzarayim, in the evening, in the afternoon, in the morning, throughout my day. And if you study Hashem's interaction in your day, and you start paying attention, I guarantee at least 10 times in the course of the day, you'll find something strange happens, and you'll be able to see that that's Hashem involved in your life. And that's one of the important exercises in Bitochen, because Bitochen is not a sense of optimism. Oh yes, if you have great Bitochen, of course you'll be optimistic. But it's not just a naive sort of optimism bias. It's a cognition, a real recognition that Hashem is here. Hashem is running my life. I trust not in the sense of goodness, not in the sense of optimism. I trust in Hashem. And that brings us to the third mistake. <clears throat> There's a third mistake that most of us make when it comes to Bitochen. And that is we think it's a win or lose game. Either you have Bitochen or you don't. 100% or zero. I have Bitochen, you don't have Bitochen, I do, you don't, whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Nothing can be further from the truth. You see, <clears throat> recognizing Hashem's presence in my life is a continuum. We start at maybe 5% or 10%, and then we grow. <clears throat> we see Hashem more clearly, see Hashem more clearly, <clears throat> more clearly. We'll go from 5% to 10%, to 10 to 12 13%, 14%. But it's an ever-changing scale. You see, this shtender is here. I know it. I have a hundred percent yidia. I know it with absolute veracity, with a hundred percent knowledge. I know it. I don't have to bang my head into it to know that it's solid and real. I know that gravity exists. I know that heavy objects tend to fall. I know that heat rises. But that's because all of my physical senses bring me that input and confirm it. But as Masilla Sharon points out, all of my senses deny Hashem's presence. I can't see Hashem, I can't hear Hashem, I can't smell Hashem, I can't taste Hashem. And so everything in my physical existence denies Hashem's presence. For me to actually see Hashem, experience Hashem, requires me stepping out of the physical boundaries. When I close my eyes in davening and I experience Hashem, I'm coming to a totally different core cognition. I'm coming to a totally different experience. And by the way, would you like to try a little exercise in growing in Bitochen? I'll give you a very simple one. You and I can have a conversation. And I guarantee you could talk to me for 20 minutes, an hour, you won't space out. You ever notice that during davening, it's very, very difficult to pay attention? Try this little exercise. Try next Shemana Esrei to just pay attention to the words that you're saying. Now listen, Shema is 500 words. It'll take you, any insertion, it'll take, let's say, six minutes. You can't pay attention for six minutes? Yet I guarantee, try it. Next Shema Esrei, you daven, just try paying attention to all the words, and you'll find something very, very strange. On a personal note, I go through this on a regular basis. Before I start Shema Esrei, is about to start, many a time I say, I want to say, oh, Hashem, I'm sorry, I, I forgot you were present. And then hopefully I start the Shemun Esrei there, thinking of the words, paying attention to the words, and I get through Mogin Avram, I get to Mechayim Esim, maybe Atah Kadosh, and then this struggle begins. Because staying on task is not so simple. Now why is that? 500 words, 6 minutes, I talk to you all day long, what's my problem? But more than that, I can learn for hours on end. Why can't I pay attention to davening? And the answer is because davening is a very different experience. Davening is communicating with Hashem, speaking to Hashem right here. But that's something that all of my senses deny. 
That's something that's very difficult for us human beings to experience, and it requires stepping out of the boundaries of the physical demands, and therefore bitachon is something that's worked on slowly, step by step by step. Day after day, week after week, you see Hashem in the big issues and the little issues, you begin to get the picture, and you grow little by little. But bitachon is not a yes or no, 100% or zero. There are many, many levels, and it's a continuum. We grow level after level after level, and the more we grow, the more confidence we have in Hashem's presence, the more we feel Hashem, the more we're able to trust in Hashem. If mistake number one is we think that it's intellectual and really it's emotional, mistake number two is we forget that there are many, many levels to it, and we forget that there are many, many dargas, and we also forget that the real work is understanding that Hashem is present, that Hashem is right there. When you see people who have sudden crises, they talk like they have total bitachon. And on a certain level, they do. They recognize Hashem, they say Hashem, and then their child gets sick, and all of a sudden, oh, what's going on? And what happens is, at that moment, they realize their bitachon wasn't bitachon. They had optimism, they had the sense of things will be well. They said the words, but it wasn't based on a knowledge of Hashem's being present. The real work is to work on that, to understand it, to feel it, and grow level after level, so that when things happen, you're not suddenly shucking up with the reality. You see, as the Chavaz Vavaz points out, anything that we trust in other than Hashem eventually will fail us. If we have this rosy picture of life, and again, it's something that's very important. It's something actually it's vital to work on. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. But if the sum total of your bitachon is based on Listen, things will be good. I'm sure things will work out. Bad things won't happen to me. Good things will. I guarantee the bubble will burst and suddenly you'll find yourself without anything to stand on. Because the reality is that people get sick, businesses go bankrupt, things don't go as we planned they should. And if you've trained yourself year after year to trust in the goodness of mankind, law and order, the fact that in general things will be good, your naive optimism will fail you, and you'll find that bad things happen. But bitachon means training myself to see Hashem in the picture, to see Hashem guiding me. Things won't be good because things are good. Things will be good because Hashem will lead me. And even when I don't understand where Hashem's leading me, even when I don't understand the why behind it, I know that Hashem is bringing me. A mushal that I think is very important, if you'd like to know what real bitachon is about, imagine a woman holding her child's hand, and the girl's about five years old, and they're going for the second chemotherapy treatment for the child. Now, the child knows that chemotherapy isn't fun. She knows what it means to be nauseous for a week on end. She knows what it means that her hair is going to fall out. But she holds her mother's hand, and she takes it knowing full well that mommy knows better than she. Mommy loves her, and mommy's taking her for her good. That's bitachon. Seeing Hashem, knowing Hashem is there, knowing Hashem is leading me. Do I know where, why? Not necessarily. But I know that I have a creator who's leading me, who's guiding me. And that's something that takes years and years of working on. And that's real bitachon. I think the Maraglim were exactly lacking in that fact. If you were to ask the Maraglim intellectually, do you believe these giants could compete with Hashem? Put them in the ring together, so to speak. What are you kidding? Hashem created the heavens and the earth. Hashem made the sun, the moon. What kind of question is that? But the problem is, the Miraglim were face-to-face with these giants. They're face-to-face looking at men who were so huge 
that the Pesach says that they looked at them like grasshoppers. Rashi says these giants looked in the field in the kerim and the vineyard and said, oh my goodness, what's in the field over there? It looks like, it's, it looks like people, but the size of grasshoppers. I Meaning there's such a huge size, size differential and that they looked down on these little men as grasshoppers. The Meraglim were faced with mortal danger and they're faced with giants and they didn't quite have the level of bitachon. Did they see Hashem? Oh, to some level they did. Did they know that Hashem created the world? Yeah. Did they know that Hashem ran the world? On some level they did. And maybe they're 20%, maybe 50%, but it wasn't enough. Had they had a total, complete Yediyah, had they been 80%, they would have seen Hashem right there, little giant. What are you, little giant? Hashem, the creator of heaven and earth, is right here with me. He's guiding me throughout. He's with me. What's to be afraid of? But because they were lacking, and they saw these powerful giants, and because of that, they said, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. You ever hear somebody say the words, I'm in such deep debt, even Hashem doesn't have enough money to bail me out. In a sense, that's what these Miraglim were going through. They felt the danger, they felt the tremendous fear, and because of that, they didn't have enough trust in Hashem to be able to say, Hashem is going to save us, and they felt on some level, not intellectually, but emotionally, that even Hashem is not strong enough. Why? Because fear filled them, and they didn't have the emotional, powerful bitachon to fight it. And again, I think the understanding that's critical for us to come to is that bitachon is a growth process. Number one, it's not intellectual. It's completely a spiritual growth, an emotional growth. It's something that takes years and years of growing. Number two, it's not a naive sort of sense of everything's going to be good. It's based on seeing Hashem. And because of that, it's level after level after level after level. And it's a constant growth process. And these are the three mistakes we make in terms of Bitochen and in terms of Muna. But I think there's a fourth mistake that we make that's equally as common. Imagine you have the following. Imagine you have a 24-year-old young woman, and she's still single, and she says the words, listen, for me, nothing but a Rosh Hashiva. That's what I want to marry. I don't want to marry anything but a Rosh Hashiva. And she's holding out, and she says, listen, I trust in Hashem. I trust in Hashem that Hashem will bring me what I need. Very nice. A young man who won't get a job because unless it's at a certain pay scale, a certain position, he's not going to take it. And I trust in Hashem. I trust that Hashem will bring me what I need. I trust in Hashem. Now, on some level, both of these people look like they're very impressive. They so much trust in Hashem that they're actually willing to put themselves in danger. This young woman knows that she could get older and older and maybe pass by Abishar. This young fellow is getting also on an age and he's not able to pay his bills, but he trusts in Hashem. It's very impressive their trust in Hashem. The only problem is it's false. Because nowhere in the Torah do you see that I have a right to write the script and then depend on Hashem to deliver me to it. You see, Hashem is the one who writes the scenery. Hashem is the one who writes what's supposed to happen to me and I'm supposed to trust in Hashem. And one of the mistakes we make is we make a mistake between the actor and the playwright. The playwright is the one who writes the script. The actor is the one who acts in the script. And imagine you had a play. They're practicing for major production, and then the director says start, and they begin this scene, and all of a sudden the main actor goes off the script. And saying, instead of saying X, Y, and Z, he says, and he starts changing the script. And the director says, cut, cut what's, what's going on here? What's happening? And the actor says, listen, I'll tell you the truth. I know the, you know, I know the script went here and there, but I didn't think it was good. I'd rather go this way. The director would say, what are you kidding me? You're not the playwright. Your job is to play your part. Before we were created, Hashem determined 
how tall, how short, how healthy, how long we live. Hashem determined the events of our life, and during our lifetime, Hashem guides us. My job is to follow the script. My job isn't to write the script. And as a matter of fact, <clears throat> the Chavaz of Ovas defines Bitochan. He says it's a relaxing of the Nefesh Abateach, but not according to my version of life. <clears throat> it's knowing that there's a decree. Knowing that Hashem has a decree for me, that's for my best. <clears throat> knowing that Hashem has mapped out the events of my life. Knowing that Hashem knows for me what's going to happen and what's for the best, and relying on Hashem. You see, it's not trusting in my version of things, it's trusting in Hashem's version. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating, I believe that 80% of our Amuna problems, 80% of our philosophical issues stem from this one mistake. We play God. Playing God means I know exactly what I need. I need to marry this woman. I need to get this job. I need to get my kid into that class. Now, I explained to Hashem what I need. I dominate Hashem. I even broke the deal. Hashem, I'll learn the Dafayomi. I'll give Sadaq Hashem. It's all good. And then for some reason, Hashem doesn't play along. And it doesn't happen. And I said, Hashem, what's this? Hashem, what's the story? I, I need this. It's my best. I daven. I said, I'll learn. I'll give stuck. Hashem, what, are you angry at me? What's, what's, what's going on? What's going on is I'm playing God. Playing God means I know exactly what I need. I know where this story should end. I know how it should follow. And I'm trying to convince Hashem to, to play along with my version of reality. And how many times do you hear that a guy had to marry that woman and she marries someone else and then two years later he finds out that the words mentally unstable are an understatement to describe her condition. I had to get that job and I didn't get the job. And five years later I find out the entire industry has shipped over to Pakistan. I had to get my kid into that class. And then three months later I find out that there's another child in that class who would have been the worst possible influence on my child. Playing God is a very risky business if you're not equipped for the role. We human beings don't know. I can see two inches in front of my nose. I could see what's right in front of me. I don't know what I need two years from now, 20 years from now. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. But bitachon means trusting that Hashem does know. Because I don't know and doesn't mean that Hashem doesn't know. And bitachon is trusting Hashem to lead me despite what I think is for the best, trusting Hashem to guide me. I'm supposed to put in my ishtadlis. I'm supposed to use my wisdom. I'm supposed to go out into the marketplace and ask myself, what's the wisest course? What do I think the derech hatev, the way of nature, demands? And I put in my effort and my energy. But if the doors are closed one after another, I say, I get it. Hashem doesn't want this to be. And I don't have a right to write the script, write the story, and depend on Hashem to play it out for me that's, I'm playing God and Hashem is the servant. It's quite the opposite. I am the servant. Hashem is my master. <clears throat> Hashem I dutifully follow. You want me to use this world in the ways of the world? I'll do that. To earn a living, I get a job. To find a shidduch, I go out. But I'm using the system the way you want me to use the system. And I know fully well that the outcomes are determined by you. I use my wisdom. I'll ask advice. I'll reach my best decision. And I'll attempt this because to my eye, it seems well and good. But if it turns out that it doesn't go as I plan, I recognize Hashem, I've done my part. You know better. And the two cognitions that are essential for a person to have bitachon, one is very simple and one is very difficult. The Chavaz of Ovas explains to us the first cognition I have to have is a clear understanding that Hashem wants my betterment. I have to clearly understand that Hashem wants me to succeed. 
I have to clearly understand that not only does Hashem have a plan for my life, but that plan is something that Hashem is doing for me because Hashem loves me. But the Chavaz of Ovas's words are even more penetrating. He says, I have to know and understand that Hashem loves me even more than I love me. As concerned as I am for my betterment, Hashem is more concerned. As much as I want my good, Hashem wants my good even more. And as much as I love myself, Hashem loves me even more. And that's a cognition that takes a while to get. When you study the events of your life, when you go through what brought you to this point, you'll quickly see Hashem there and you'll recognize it. As a matter of fact, I give an exercise. If you'd like to grow that cognition, a very simple exercise is to read a biography. The biography of your life. Every Jew has a story. Every Jew ended up, I met this one and this happened all of a sudden. I'm here and I never dreamt, never planned to be here. Study your life. Look back on the events of your life. Look at this and that and what happened. And all of a sudden, wow. And you begin to see, I get it. Hashem was there guiding me. Hashem loves me. Hashem is concerned for my good. And this first cognition is not that hard to come to. It's a second cognition that's very, very difficult and trips us up all the time. The second cognition explains the Chavos of Avos is the understanding that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. As wise as I am, I don't really get it. I don't know where I need to be 10 years from now. As much as I understand life, I really don't. And the understanding that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best allows me to have full, complete trust. When things turn bleak and black and it looks horrible and it looks terrible and oh my goodness, I'm in deep, dire straits. The understanding that I don't know where I need to be. I don't know where I'm supposed to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, but Hashem does. Hashem is a very wide lens. Hashem sees the future and the past. Hashem sees my whole life and Hashem knows far better than I what I need. The Rambam says a very powerful expression. You see, the Mishnah says, Chayev Adam Levarech, Alatov Valara. We're obligated to thank Hashem. We're obligated to say a bracha. The same bracha on the good and the bad. Yomar says it's not true. There's a different bracha that we say on good tidings than we say on bad tidings. What does the Mishnah mean that we say the same bracha on the good and the bad? It says Yomar, not the same language, but the same joy. And the same simcha in your heart. When bad tidings, as when good tidings, that's what the good Mishnah means. And the Rambam says, how could that be? Imagine I just won the lotto. A hundred million dollars. Joy. Happy. How could you expect me to say that bracha with the same joy as when I find out my business is bankrupt? I brought my child to the chuppah. Tremendous happiness. You expect me to have the same joy if Rahman a person has to bring the child to the, to the kever? How could you have the same joy? Says the Rambam, if you look at events, a chacham, a wise man, will quickly come to this understanding. He says, how many times did bad things happen to us? And then a little while later, we saw it was really for the best. It was really great. And only because of that, great things came out of it. And how many times the opposite? Such good tidings. And it turns out we find out later it's not for our good at all. This understanding that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best allows me to trust in Hashem. I have to know that Hashem loves me. I have to know that Hashem has a much broader picture. I have to know that Hashem knows what's better for me, better than I do. And even if there is no good in this world, knowing that Hashem created me for the world to come, knowing that this is a temporary passageway, and that at some point I'll recognize why this is for the best, those are the two cognitions that a person has to have if they want to really trust Hashem. 
The definition of bitochen is menuchas nefesh abateach, a relaxing, a calmness. But it's not a calmness based on my version of reality. It's a calmness because I trust in Hashem. I trust that Hashem knows better than I. I trust in Hashem's plan and is a certain relaxation. It's not that I write the script. Because the fourth mistake that we make is we think that we have a right to know what's going to be good, what's the best. And I trust Hashem to bring me that. I trust Hashem that Hashem will allow my business to succeed. I trust Hashem that this shidduch will work out. And that is a very risky business. It has nothing to do with bitachon, because again, bitachon means trusting in Hashem's version of the scene, Hashem's version of my life, and it's something that requires a tremendous amount of work. I think there is a tremendous lesson for us to learn from the Meraglim. That lesson is, these people were great people. And they said, Hashem, and they said, hopefully, and they said, yes, Hashem is here. But when they were put to the test, they failed. Why? Because they didn't have absolute clarity. Now, we're not put to that kind of test. They were great enough, and they lived through enough miracles, and they were put to a test that you and I will never be put to. But the point is, what they were being tested in was real bitochen. You see, real bitochen is not an intellectual knowledge. You don't learn bitochen in the base medrash. That's the first mistake we make. We think that bitochen is about understanding. It's about learning the chavos levavos, listening to shiurim. It's very important to do that. It's the first step so I at least understand what I'm supposed to incorporate into my life. But bitochen is an emotional reality, recognizing and understanding that Hashem is here. The settings of my life are what tests my bitachon. If life is good and wonderful and everything's going great, <clears throat> I'm not being tested at all. It's only when things are rocky, things are rough, that I have an opportunity to grow in bitachon and to trust in Hashem when things are difficult. And I go from that level to that level, test after test, and I grow and I grow. As I said to that gentleman, he had anxiety. Anxiety is a temperament of a person. Some people by nature are calm and relaxed. Some people are nervous. Bitachon is an overlay if you're finding yourself nervous and anxious, it could be because it's a lack of bitachon. It might also have nothing to do with bitachon. It might have to do with a inborn or learned anxiety, and you have to deal with it independently. It's always beneficial to work on bitachon because the more you see Hashem in your life, the easier it is to go through life. But understanding that the test of bitachon is based on the settings of my life and based on my temperament, and then I understand that bitachon is not an intellectual understanding, it's an emotional reality. And the second mistake that we often make is we mistake optimism for bitachon. Being optimistic is very wonderful, very important. It's a great midah, but it has nothing to do with bitachon. Bitachon is not an optimistic naivete. Bitachon is a very clear understanding. Hashem is here. Hashem is running my life. And because of that, bitachon has many, many levels. 10%, 15%, 20%, and we grow level after level. Our bitochen might be good enough for this situation, but not good enough for that situation. This might be a test we could withstand. This one might not be. But as we go through life and we grow in the thick and thin of life, we learn bitochen in the real world, in the real sense. We grow and we reach different levels. And the final mistake that we make is we play God. Playing God means I know exactly what I need. I know exactly how the script should read, and I ask Hashem to please um, allow my scene to come out as it should. And that has nothing to do with bitachon. I have no right to decide how things should go. I have a right to say my wisdom, my understanding shows me this. I asked Eitz, I asked advice, and this is what I seem should be what I do. 
But you see, it's always based on the understanding that this is what Hashem wants for me. But if I ask and I'm told this is not what I should be doing, or if I try and I try and it doesn't go, at that point I say to myself, I get it. It's not what Hashem wants, and I change direction. Understanding that Hashem writes the scenery, Hashem writes the script, my job is to just use the world in the way of the world, knowing that Hashem leads me as I'm supposed to go, and that is the background, that is the basics of Bitochen. And I think the Miraglim are a clear example and a very powerful illustration of these concepts. And I want to close with one last thought. It's a thought that I think some people have heard the story, but I think it's an incredibly significant lesson for us. The story's told that a man was in a town, and suddenly there was a flood, a huge flood. And he runs up to the second floor of his house, and the water's coming up higher and higher, and he's standing in his bedroom on the second floor at the window when the water's literally up to the, up to the window. And finally, somebody comes by in a raft and says, Jump in, I can save you, jump in. The man at the window says, No, I trust in Hashem, I'm not getting in the raft. The raft passes. Ten minutes later, a guy comes by in a rowboat. Quick, jump in, I can save you. The man at the window says, No, I trust in Hashem, I'm not getting in the rowboat. The water goes higher and higher. And finally, ten minutes later, a speedboat comes by. Jump in, jump in, I can save No, I trust in Hashem, I'm not getting in. Water goes higher and higher, the man drowns. Comes up to Shemayim. He says, Hashem, I don't understand. I trusted in you. I, I, I waited for you, Hashem. What happened? And a voice comes out and says, who do you think sent the speedboat? Meaning the understanding that Hashem runs the world doesn't mean that I have a right to say how Hashem should run the world. My plan is not always what Hashem wants. But more than that, my job is to trust Hashem. Not to trust in Hashem to do what I want, to trust Hashem, to know that Hashem is here, to know that Hashem is with me, to know that Hashem loves me, that Hashem wants my betterment, and to know that Hashem has a plan. I embrace that, I grip that, because I know that Hashem has my best interest in heart, Hashem loves me, and with that I walk through life knowing that Hashem is leading me.